And that's why we provide this space only for women because I saw my colleagues, I myself also like faced a lot of verbal sexual harassments within the, the, the university when I was studying in, in, in areas that I was going for conferences or even internet cafes and, and, and it wasn't a pleasant experience and um, still it's going on. So I wanted to give that place for the girls to come and feel very free, just feel the freedom of no one going to question them, no one going to criticize the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they want to ask a question. So I wanted to just give them that freedom in that space to just like be themselves. And and I think that's the key to when you be authentic with yourself and you know who you are, you can be more creative and innovative because you have a free mind and you can, a lot of thoughts can come to a free mind. So that mm-hmm. was the reason that I wanted to provide this place. listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. When you transform one person's life, it causes a ripple effect and thousands more are positively impacted as a result. You quite literally can change the world, one person at a time. That's really what my next guest, Fedeshta Farouk's life's mission is all about. Her nonprofit Code to Inspire, which is a computer coding school, has transformed the lives of 150 girls in Afghanistan, all in the midst of a war zone. In this episode, we learn about Fedeshta's fascinating origin story. Her parents are originally from Herat, Afghanistan, but when the Soviets invaded, they left everything behind and started a new life in Iran, which is where she was born and raised. Fedeshta shares with us experiences and the challenges of being a refugee, facing discrimination, and needing to constantly hide her true identity, and what psychological impacts this left on her. We talk about the differences of Afghan and American culture and the importance of critical thinking. Fedeshta also shares how she incorporates certain American values into how she runs Code to Inspire. It is my distinct honor and privilege to introduce Fereshta Furor. Fereshta, how are you today? Good, not bad. Not bad? Yeah. Where are we right now? We are at Google headquarters in New York City in Chelsea Market. It's wonderful. Now, how long have you been in New York City? I've been in New York City since November 2012. Great, great. And then what brought you to New York? The reason that I came to New York City was that I was a co-founder of my former not-for-profit. Sure. And we helped the girls in Afghanistan learn very basic digital literacy program. And because our sponsors and the people who were in the board were based here, we decided that I come here to New York City so that I can help the team more to do more conferences, networking, and talk about Afghanistan. So that was the reason that I came to New York. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's help uh, our audience understand how you uh, got to New York step by step. So uh, right now you are uh, the founder and CEO of an organization called Code to Inspire. So really quickly, can you tell us what this organization is, how you found it, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Well, Code to Inspire is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit in the U.S. We operate in Afghanistan. We opened the first computer coding school for girls in Afghanistan, November 2015. And definitely 
the, the reason that I created this organization was very personal to me because of my background being born as a refugee and also a woman in technology. I wanted to provide equal opportunity for women in tech mm -hmm. so that not only they access resources of learning, but also help them in future so that they can find employment opportunities within the community and also uh, become financially independent. Give you some numbers about the school. Sure. We've educated 150 students so far. And um, in different classes, we offered classes in mobile application, both Android, iOS, game design, we use Unity, okay. graphic design, web development. And recently, we just uh, offer a blockchain and cryptocurrency class in our curriculum. The classes are two years after school program. Right now, we are only located in Herat, which is a city in west of Afghanistan that I'm uh, from and my parents are from. We only have one location. And recently, we just actually announced a new class for graphic design, which we were so surprised because we had about 300 applicants who um, uh, just registered. And unfortunately, we just had to accept the top 60 because of the limited resources. But we are very excited to have this new group of students in the school. Now, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Now, these 60 students, are they all mostly based out of Herat? Or are they all over Afghanistan? Where are they? They're mainly based in Herat because we just like have this location only in Herat. And mm -hmm. that makes sense that for the girls who are in the city, and it's easier for them to commute to come to the school. Great. So you have an actual school, a physical location whereby girls come, they learn how to code. They actually not only learn, but they actually get employment, right? So how does that work? So it's a school and an employment location? Yes, so we do have a physical location, but we rent to an entire building, so we don't own the property. It's a rented space. It has three floors, so we have educational classes, we have a conference room, we have one media lab to record the video for the classes. So it's a kind of like mainly the purpose of the girls coming to that place is educational. We have daily classes, uh, morning, like from... Uh, 8 a.m. to like 5 p.m. in different time slots they come. Sure. But, but we do actually have uh, certain times and certain laptops dedicated to the students who uh, are working. Either they have a freelance work that they are working for a company in Afghanistan or we gave them an outsource project so mm -hmm. that they can use the opportunity to work on that project as well. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So uh, how do you find work for these girls then? Do you do you have like, is that your job? Do you find contracts? Do you find work? Do you advertise it on angel lists? Like how does that work when you find employment for girls in Afghanistan? Well, that's a very new concept uh, that we are doing and not a lot of people um, do that in Afghanistan and especially with girls and women. So certainly it has its own challenges, but what we really did, I think it was very organically growing and we got the people through different places. So in our website, we do have a tab that said hire our graduate. So if you go to the website, there is a form, you fill out a form, you tell us about your projects, Great. the timeline and the budget. Great. And I'm the one who usually received the email. So I reach out to the potential clients and talk to them. And once we all agreed, then we continue to work. But we also do a lot of shout out in our social media. So Oftentimes, I promote it in our social media pages as well and also sending it in a newsletter to our subscribers to learn about it. 
And to be honest, also, like, sometimes we just, like, had random people who reach out and they're like, oh, we heard about your school and we want to give an opportunity to your students to work on my projects, which sure. was amazing. And sure. so it's kind of like a combination of, like, through our own network or just organically people just reach out to us. That's amazing. Now, is there a way you can kind of help understand in terms of numbers, how many projects you've worked on, how many girls you've actually employed, what that looks like in terms of income or any of that stuff, just so we can understand? Absolutely. Well, as of now, we've educated about 150 girls total in the classes that I mentioned. Sure. And we had the first group of our graduate and we graduated 50 students in different classes. Mm -hmm. I can say that 70% of our graduate through what we taught them either found job in the community. So they mm -hmm. got hired by the companies in Herat. Mm -hmm. And then we had two groups of our students that actually they became entrepreneur, created their own startups and they raised funds. And now they provide IT services as a company, an all female based company. And we had also 20 outsourced projects, mainly from US to our graduates. And we hired 20 of them to work in different projects. And majority of the girls who worked in these projects, they got paid either from least amount, like $50, to the highest amount, which is $400. And for a lot of them, that was the first time that they ever get paid in their life. And we are talking about a country that the average income salary monthly is $150 to $200. So some of them actually making double or triple than the male family members of the of their family. So that certainly we see there's a huge outcome and impact of what we've invested this past four years, especially with the employment opportunity, even though these all are for us trial and, you know, still we are testing, mm -hmm. but we see a great result. And hopefully in future, the plan is that how we can become more sustainable and add a business um, model mm -hmm. to the not-for-profit that we have to make it more sustainable mm -hmm. and create a pipeline of employment for our students so that uh, we help them more and they get more paid jobs. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's great progress. You must be you must be so excited. Yes, I mean like every morning I wake up. There's like there's at least fifteen to twenty, sometimes more tweets from our students in Afghanistan, and we help them how to create Twitter accounts and then tweet about their work and engage other people. So when you see that you have a student who come to this program, for example, one student we had who came to the program and she never touched a computer, she never been online, she never had even basic phone, and she, but she was very enthusiastic. And she, in the interview we had, uh, we asked her, what is your motivation that you want to come to this coding yeah, school? This, Why you want to learn coding? Yeah. And she was like, I want to make money. And I was like, that's great. There's no shame in making money. And that's awesome. I like this goal. And we told her we help you to make money. And so when she came and through the program, she went through our web development class and she was performing amazing. And she was very mot motivated, highly active student. And once she graduated, she actually went to a company mm -hmm. and uh, convinced them that she can create a website for them. And she created a website and she got paid $200 for the first time. You're talking about like a teenage Afghan girl who've never given the chance and opportunity and now she is making a difference. So there's a lot of stories like that that we, we've seen from our students that how it is important and life-changing to provide such opportunity for them. Oh my gosh, I think that's... Uh... 
That's transformational. That's transformational woman's and young girl's life and her family's life and her not only in her economic well-being, but also like the notion that, you know, she can make a dent in the world. She can make, you know, something better for herself. Uh, there is this idea that, you know, you can be compensated for the skills that you have. And the reason why this is interesting is, you know, in the West, in the United States, this is the default mode in which people operate. Like people know this from infancy, that this is how things work here. But what's really curious about what you're talking about in your organization and, and what you're doing and how you're inspiring these girls is that in the framework of the Afghan uh, reality, in the context of the culture and the war and the conflict, that is not the norm. And so hearing these stories about these girls and this girl in particular is really, really monumental because that's not the norm. Maybe it's kind of helpful for, for listeners here to kind of understand, like, what would be the norm then for, how would you describe every other girl's kind of experience? Like, what is the average sort of existence for a young girl? And and then let's compare that with the, this girl that you just brought, up, brought about who is making money and starting her own company and stuff like that. Well, if you look at the numbers, during the Taliban, there were 900,000 students going to school with zero girls going to school. Mm -hmm. And they were all boys and mm -hmm. with zero women participating in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And then after that, within the, after the 2000, to the fall of Taliban and the, the international community supporting, right now there's like 7 million students going to school, 2.5 million of them are girls. And you see the progress. But... You talk about big cities. Mm -hmm. You don't talk about the remote village area that there's a still very male-dominated. Still, there's a lot of traditional thoughts and beliefs about women should stay home. An mm -hmm. average Afghan girl, certainly either in the city depends on the family mm -hmm. or especially in village and remote area, mm -hmm. they barely have the opportunity to make it to high school mm -hmm. because the infrastructure is not supporting that. There's not a lot of buildings for proper school and classrooms. Mm -hmm. You talk about sanity and even restrooms, separate restrooms for the girls. And when the girls get their periods, they have to miss the school because mm -hmm. uh, it's just like not prepared for them and they got excluded. Mm -hmm. And then a lack of human resources, there's not a lot of teachers who are qualified to, for example, offer high school education on that area or even university. So when it comes to that level of infrastructure and giving them equal resources, boys are more mobile because then they can leave the village and go to a high school maybe an hour away in other city or to university. And unfortunately, forced marriages, early marriages of the girls in the young age make them to stop going to school because unfortunately the family of the boy wants to get engaged or uh, get married. They uh, don't let the girl to go to school and they mm -hmm. have to stay home. And so that's also a big problem about stopping the girl's education. And certainly insecurity and instability, the places that the extremists like Taliban mm -hmm. have presence, they gain power, they burn the schools. We saw incidents that they burn the school, they destroy the school, so families prefer not sending their daughter and risk their safety and want them to just be home. And and these are like some of the prominent or common reasons, unfortunately, yeah. for a lot of the girls in um, different places in Afghanistan to not being able to go to higher education or even to university. But also, I think, to my perspective, lack of an employment opportunity for women. Mm -hmm. Even like if you look at the workforce, the offices are the same. Like it's not very 
very comfortable for women. There's not a lot of, you know, services that they can provide for women, you know, that they feel comfortable. We see uh, verbal sexual harassments in the offices for women. And that's maybe one reason that a lot of families say, look, uh, the, the husband or the father or the brother say, we make money, so we don't need you bring money. So like, we don't want you to go to that office. Yeah. So that's also like one reason that prevents a lot of the women to feel comfortable leaving the house and then going in the mixed working area as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I really appreciate that explanation. That's really uh, that's really helpful. So, so what you're providing then through your school, Code to Inspire, and through your employment opportunities, the ability for women to even do work at home, right? So as long as they have a Wi-Fi connection, they can still uh, build websites, they can make programs, they can make apps, they can do that from the comfort of their own home so they don't have to get exposed to the sense of insecurity, right? Danger, harassment. It essentially, what what I'm trying to s- explain is that your your model fits given the cultural norms in Afghanistan today. Right. I mean, I, I definitely, I also don't want to be like a mm. person that people think that I'm excluding. Like, I don't want men to be part of this process because I have five mentors that they're men yeah. and they teach the classes. And I yeah. think certainly engaging both men and women in the community mm-hmm. to thrive together, it's very key. But but unfortunately, as you said, when you have an issue like that, what is the good solution in a way that you make families feel comfortable about sending their daughters to your place and then there is more turnout of what they can do with what they have learned with less risks and uh, less problems for them and that's why we provide this space only for women because i saw my colleagues i myself also like faced a lot of verbal sexual harassments within the, the, the university when I was studying in, in in areas that I was going for conferences or even internet cafes and and, and it wasn't a pleasant experience and um, still it's going on so I wanted to give that place for the girls to come and feel very free just feel the freedom of no one going to question them no one going to criticize the way they talk the way they walk the way they want to ask a question so i wanted to just give them that freedom in that space to just like be themselves and and i think that's the key to when you be authentic with yourself and you know who you are you can be more creative and innovative because you have a free mind and you can a lot of thoughts can come to a free mind so that Mm -hmm. was the reason that i wanted to provide this place and to your point yes they can use our school. They can use their home if they do have laptops or internet to do the work remotely and get paid without uh, dealing with a lot of the logistical issues. Oh, that's wonderful, Freshta. That's great. Okay, great. So how is it that you, you're able to attract new students? Is it word of mouth? Do you announce it? If you announce it, does that put your school in danger? How does this all work? Well, there are different ways that we do. And once we started... It was more in person. So we went to schools, our mentors and team, they went to schools, they went to universities, they talked about the program, they talked about the classes. And if anyone wanted to register, they would have called the number we provided or they would have come to the school itself in person and registered. That was how we started. But then once we saw a lot of demand and the, 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 the growth, and uh, then we started more promoting, if we have new classes, we use social media, mainly Facebook, because a lot of the 
the, the Afghans, I think, are more active on Facebook, the community, rather than Twitter to promote that. Mm -hmm. So we use Facebook. Um, we are also partner with a local TV station called Ask TV. It's one of the prominent TV stations in west of Afghanistan and in Herat. So we partner with them. So they actually advertised for us our announcements. We also send a lot of announcements as print in universities. So that was like different ways that we try to announce new classes. And we also this time decided to use uh, Google Forms as uh, the way that if someone wants to register online. Yeah. And it was amazing because we had actually 200 of the applicants use the Google form to just register for the new class to come to the school. That's amazing. Gosh. So it's amazing the uh, the impact that technology can have and the efficiency in which it has happened, right? Even in a place like Afghanistan, like people may not have the means in which to go to work, but they have the ability to be online. Right. And also, I think the word of mouth was a key player to what we did, because once we started, not a lot of people believed in us. They thought, oh, it's like a short term project funded, going to be for a couple of months, then they're going to go away and, and it's going to be finished. But we've been um, in this uh, space for four years and we proved that we are not here for short term. Mm -hmm. So... After the six, the first six months or first year, we actually had the father, brother of the girls come to the school and wow. they wanted to, we want to check the space because we see a difference in our daughter. We see she's more active. She's doing some stuff on computer. We can't tell what it is, but they came and they checked the school and we were yeah. so happy that, yeah. oh my God, like the father and brother who fortunately or unfortunately are the people who are taking a decision. They came and checked the school. And we recently actually had, when we finished our announcement, we don't text students again because it's a long process. We take an exam from students and we don't accept new applicants. So we tell them you should wait for the next time. So one of the mothers of the, the applicants who missed the opportunity, she actually called and she, for half an hour, she was just like saying that I heard a lot of good things about your place, which is safe for the girls and there's a future for the girls in this place. Please accept my daughter. Take an exam again from her in your class. And, and, and worth of mouth, I think like that really helped us a lot. Uh, we got recognized, at least in Herat, but in a national level, as like this place that people feel trust. And that's a big thing for us because in a community like Afghanistan, you really need people trust you and feel safe about you and what you do. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think in Afghanistan, trust is the ultimate currency because if you can't trust somebody, especially in a highly insecure environment where tomorrow you really just can't count on what's going to happen. And so I think what people often forget when it comes to how human beings interact and or behave, we do most of the things we do because we're trying to establish trust or find it and or maintain it. It's just part of who we are as human beings. So it's wonderful you're able to do that. So let's take a quick step back. I'd love to kind of uh, understand like how you got to this place where you found it, Code Inspire. So I would love to hear about your origin story. I'd love for you to kind of tell us, you know, how you grew up. You were a refugee. Tell us about like, uh, let's, let's talk about that. So let's, let's talk about your early upbringing and, and how that kind of played out so we just understand who you are as a person. So my family, as I mentioned, are originally from Herat. It's a very beautiful mountainous city in west of Afghanistan and very famous for its culture. So 
when the Soviet invaded Afghanistan, unfortunately, my parents, like a lot of other families, wanted to find a safe haven for their children. So they moved to Iran, which was the closest neighborhood to Herat. I was born in a very small town near to Iran and Afghanistan border called torbat And that was like a main hub for a lot of refugees to stop. And then if they wanted to go to other places, uh, they moved to other cities. I uh, grew up in a big family, eight kids, um, the fifth one. So I always um, tell my parents that I'm not the oldest and I'm not the youngest to get spoiled or get the authority to say something. (laughs) I'm like in the middle. So I kind of grew up by myself. No one really cared about the fifth child, I think, at this point. Oh, that's so funny. So I think that's (laughs) what's the reason that make me more independent Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, uh, watch out for myself and uh, go after my dreams. I think as a kid, I was very stubborn and I wasn't obedient, but not in a bad way. In a good way, right? uh, In a good way, but I wanted to do everything the way I wanted to do. So I... Since I was a kid, I didn't want to tell people to tell me what to do. And I think that's how it makes me to be a founder because I just don't want to work for people. I want to work for myself. And I never liked the job of like eight or nine to five and work for someone else's dream, which is not, I mean, I'm not criticizing it, but I think that was my spirit from um, being a kid. I wanted to always be a leader and do something and I would be the one to start something. Yeah. So definitely, I mean, being born as a refugee, it's very, it's, it, it, it has its own, I think, way of people thinking that the negativity around like being a refugee, I think, is something that a lot of people first think about that as a refugee, that you come to one city to steal the opportunity from people to get the jobs. But there's a lot more to that, which to my perspective as a real refugee, it's not something the refugees are doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the beauty of diversity and indifferences and people helping the community to thrive and grow with what they know. To me, that's the beauty of the refugees going somewhere Mm -hmm. and introducing their cultures to other people and learn from other people's culture. But my parents, well, from a very uh, privileged background, so they had to leave everything and just like everyone with a suitcase or two, they had to go and start a new life. Mm-hmm. So my mom actually learned how to stitch and make dresses so mm-hmm. she could sell that and she could bring money to the family. And with that money, she actually was investing on our education. And as a refugee in Iran, every year you had to get a paper to show to the school from Iran government so that they let you to come to school. If you, for whatever reason, couldn't get that paper, you would have missed one year of education, which one of my siblings missed one year because the school didn't um, accept him. So growing up with the fear of either I would be able to go to school this year or not was always with me. And And I think education is a basic human rights. No matter your background, your race, gender, or any indifferences, you shouldn't be prevented of not going to school. Mm. So that was always with me of like why I should be prevented because I'm just different. I can't go to school. And of course, the financial struggles. I mean, eight kids in a family, being um, a refugee in a new country, you don't know a lot of resources and not a lot of chances it's giving to you. There's certain jobs only that the Afghans could do in Iran. So it makes your opportunities limited. 
So I remember that I, we, we grew up fairly not privileged or not financially in a great situation. We received second-half clothing from our teachers, our neighbors, also coupons for food. So, so that was, I think, for me, a big motivation of I should perform as much as I can to prove that I'm not here to be a burden. And that's why during the whole 12 years of student in high school and elementary primary school in Iran, I was always number one in the class. And I was always number one in school among the students. And, 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 and to me, that was a motivation that I wanted to prove that I'm not here to steal any opportunity. I'm actually, you know, if you give me opportunity or resources, yeah. I can perform well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess part of it also, like, the huge part of it was also hiding your identity. Tell us about that. What does that mean? So, you know, like, when, when I was in that small city, Torbatajam, the one that I was born, I was there until my fifth grade. That was a very diverse city, meaning, like, there was a lot of population of Afghans there, but also very a uh, combination of Sunni Muslim majority and also Shia. So you wouldn't feel that like, oh, you're Sunni or you're Shia. It was very, you know, like blending. Everyone was just, you know, practicing their own faith. And it was very, it, it was a very good vibe. But when we moved in my sixth grade to Mashhad for my dad's job, mm. and it was a, it's a big city and it's the most religious city in Iran, thing was different. I remember one day when I was in the school, one of the students came and she was like, oh, like, do we have Christian in the class? And because in our family, my dad always emphasized on reading more, he was always educating us about other religion and things. I thought that, well, I mean, like Christianity, I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, they, she's probably talking about that. But the, the information and explanation she was providing mm -hmm. was about Sunnis that, I'm practicing and my family are practicing and but she didn't know that and then she started saying some like nasty stuff about so I that moment I was like wow like she's talking about like what I'm practicing and I didn't say anything I went home and I told my dad what happened mm -hmm. and I remember my dad asked all of us and said well this happened to Ferishta today but you may see more in this city don't ever tell anyone that you are practicing Sunni. Just pretend you are like them. Mm -hmm. Just pretend and mm -hmm. learn what they practice. Mm -hmm. If they ask you to say pray in the school, say pray the same way they do. Mm -hmm. uh, just be like them because you don't want to be questioned mm -hmm. and look um, down. And then from that day, I never told even to my best friends that I'm like Sunni. They thought that I'm like, you know, Muslim, Shia practicing. And I never told also I'm Afghan because... Some of the people used Afghan as an insult. They call it like Afghani, as in like insult to other. So I didn't say um, that I'm Afghan. So as a teenager growing up, you anyway, I guess, um, face with these critical moments of like your identity. It's, it's just a, a stage of your life that you are figuring it out for yourself. Yeah. And then once you have these problems of like, oh, I can't tell the reality. You kind of like live in this shadow of who you are truly and who you present to other people just to be accepted. And that was, uh, for me, I think one of the most challenging things that 
I faced as a refugee and probably some other refugees have to just do the same because they just don't want to be criticized. Yeah, that's really interesting. The idea of acceptance and the idea of neglecting uh, a genuine sense of your own identity in order to be accepted, in order to have the same opportunities as those that you're, that you're a part of or those that you want to be a part of is is unfortunately a, a common sort of thing that happens. Even now, relations between Iranians and Afghans aren't that great. I mean, refugees across the world in many ways aren't accepted in the places that they go, whether it's Iran, Pakistan, even parts of the West, right? It's hard. It's hard to find that notion of acceptance. And what's interesting about it is the sort of mental gymnastics that you have to go through where the moment you step out of your house, you're Iranian or you have to play as though you're an Iranian by those norms. And the moment that you step back into your house with your family, you have to go back to being Avwan, right? Like your family roots, Hirati, the way in which you practice your faith. Now, from what I understand, like this is something everybody in your family had to do. Right. I mean, majority of us who is going to school have yeah. to do that. I mean, we only had one or two neighbors who kind of like knew. Mm-hmm. And, and they were very nice neighbors. They like protected us a lot. One of our neighbors, for example, I remember one day I was home with my mom and she came, knocked our door and she was like, oh, I see like this big truck of the police knocking doors asking for Afghans. And if they don't have documentation, they yeah. put them in the truck and then they put them in these camps and them, deport yeah. them to Afghanistan. Yeah. Don't open the door. And if they knock my door, I tell them, oh, they're Iranian. I know them. They're at work. And so just don't open the door. And it was very scary. But that's the reality. You know, you like you have to outside of the home, you're someone else. And inside you try to be your true self. That's interesting. Yeah. So you found you found strength in a place, even though you had to learn how to mirror the population amongst you're with, as well as try to be genuine to who you are at home, and you found strength and, and opportunity in this space. So help us understand how you went from that world, and the fall of the Taliban happens, and you and your family then go back to Herat. How did that transition and transformation happen when you went, went back to Herat? What did you feel were you proud to say that you were Afghan? How did other Afghans feel? That's a very good um, question and an interesting experience I had. Well, when after the uh, fall of Taliban and the transitional government, they asked my dad to go to Afghanistan and offered him a job. So he got appointed as the uh, director of the borders uh, and tribes in the western part of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So he went, he stayed for six months. We were still in Iran. He came back. The situation was getting harder for us in Iran. I graduated from 12th grade, and okay. I was excited, actually, to apply for university. But In uh, Iran? In Iran, yes. Never had in my mind that I'm going to go back to Afghanistan, like, longer term. And, and then the situation was getting very difficult for refugees and Afghans. A lot of public universities wouldn't accept you, mm-hmm. even if you get a very good score. Mm-hmm. You only had the opportunity to go to private universities, mm-hmm. and it was very expensive. So it was getting harder and harder. And when my dad came, he said, well, I think that's the time for us to go back. I think the situation is good. Herat is pretty safe. We go back to our roots, and I think there's more opportunity for you all in Afghanistan rather than in Iran. 
I was so much against it. I thought that, oh my God, I was born here. I have friends. Uh, I have dreams here. I'm going to go to a country that I have no idea. I'd never been there. The only thing I saw was in the news and it was always bombing, war. And the only pretty pictures I saw was from my mom, you know, photo albums. And there's old time. Ago, and, yeah. and it was like, I don't know. This is like an unknown world for me. And yeah. I don't know if I can connect, but... We all decided that it's time, and we remember, I remember, I think it was November, yes. Mm -hmm. We packed everything in a big truck, and because we were a big family, so we divided half of my siblings, majority of my siblings, and my uncle, they take the road to Afghanistan. And then me, my mom, dad, and my younger brother, we stayed for a couple of more days, and then we take the uh, car, and we went after them. So I was very, it was very heartbreaking because I was crying the whole way. I had to leave my friends. I had to leave where I grew up. I uh, was upset. I didn't know like if it's a good choice or not. I had no idea what's uh, going on. And, and it was actually happening in my birthday. So I Are was very serious? upset. Yes. <laughs> I was like, thanks for the birthday gift. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was very upset and crying. And, and you were turning, what, 18 years old? 17, 17. I think. Yeah. Oh, so, that's tragic. So we we went. I, everything from Iran to Afghanistan border was kind of like fine. You know, the roads are nice. I mean, we stopped a couple of times for food and stuff. Yeah. We got to the border, and that's like my first picture of Afghanistan. I mean, the border of Herat. And we got off the car, and we had to pass the border. So my dad had all the passports, documents, and everything. And they took all of our refugee documents in Iran. Mm -hmm. And then they just like tear it apart so that we don't go back or keep it as like identity. That was Iran policy. So if you leave, they would have just take it from you. Oh, so just seeing that, that like, that's it. No time going back. <laughs> and then we passed it. It was, it was just like a, a lot of families like us waiting in line. No sign of green, very dusty, very windy day. Mm -hmm. And everyone was just like stressed out, waiting in line. And that was like first picture of Afghanistan. And once I put my foot in the land, I feel peace. I felt peace. I felt like it's home. It's, it's, it's my home. Now I don't have to hide my identity. I'm Afghan, mm -hmm. like everyone else. So I was happy. <laughs> So let's talk about that. So the moment you went into the country, that wave of calmness came over you and you f actually felt it? You actually felt like I'm home? Yes. It was uh, very peaceful. I was like, this is home. Now I don't have to hide my identity. Uh, it was amazing because I guess like my true identity was given to me by this land, even though I didn't know like anything about that land. It's almost like you walked into your identity. Yes. Yes, it was amazing. So we got into the car to go to Herat, the city. The road was very bumpy, unpaved, terrible. Yeah. I was crying still. I was in my crying mood and crying upset. It took like a, a few hours. It's a lot. And it was getting dark once we were getting closer. And I remember I asked my dad when we arrived to the city, Herat city. He said, well, you're actually in the middle of the city. I was like, whoa. 
I can't believe now, it was a dark city.、Mm-hmm. Only very old lanterns were、mm-hmm. outside of the shops.、Mm-hmm. You see very few electric lights, and it was dark. I was like, "Oh my goodness, that's the city!" I couldn't believe. So we arrived,、mm-hmm. and we had a well at home. So that was my first experience taking water from well. <laughs> no healthy pipeline. We only had electricity for three hours a day. Yes, and、okay. it was only when the it was getting darker,、uh, like、uh, that time around like six seven p.m. until ten p.m. So you do whatever you can to use that electricity, either ironing your clothes or saving, you know,、yeah. charging batteries and things like that. Well, well that's interesting,、uh, Farishta, because so most people outside of cities didn't have even that. One, two. Who was keeping your house? Who was taking care of your land and your house while you were in Iran? Who was to, who was doing that? Well, actually, my cousins, my paternal、mm-hmm. cousins, and my、uh, grandfather from、mm-hmm. my mom's side,、mm-hmm. they stayed. They didn't come. Oh my god! They came for short visits, but they actually stayed. Although a lot of our lands, the house that my parents were living was taken by Russians, and then after that,、um, it was taken by Mujahideens and. We couldn't fight over it. It was just taken. Right, right. And this new place that my dad got, he just rented a new building for us. Well, what's curious about that is most people that came back to Afghanistan from Iran, Pakistan, New York, Berlin, all these places that Afghan Afghans fled to, when they came back after the fall of the Taliban, many people realized their land was gone. Somebody was somebody had overtaken their land, their homes. It was a mess. A mess. So you guys had to give up your family home, and then rent another place. Is what you're telling us? Yes, my mom actually showed us where they used to live, but it was just taken, and、mm-hmm. we didn't have like the right documentation, I guess, like to keep it to fight for and、uh, everything. So when we moved, it was at a new place. My dad got it for us. And so the family home that you had, how many generations was it in your family before you? A lot. There's、uh, this area in Herat called Gaizon、uh, and Postena Mariek. Okay. That was my like ancestors、uh, who generation for generation they owned the properties、yeah. and the lands and they had it for a long time. Yeah. And still there are some remaining of that, but. But that, but they got it, yes. So so it was like new life for them too, kind of. My for parents, your, for your parents, yes, to kind of like you know build a new house or build a new space, and then go after figuring out what has left or remained, or well, what's the situation. For for them, it was kind of new too. But for us, I made a mistake a lot of times clicking the the light. To turn it on during the day, thinking there's light, but no, there's no electricity. You know, <laughs> I made a lot of like、yeah. habits that I had. Right. And the next day, my uncle took us with a car to show us the city, and、uh, I see less kind of like a side of ruins in Herat compared、mm-hmm. to Kabul,、mm-hmm. uh, but still we could see like sign of wars in、mm-hmm. Herat as well. I went for my first shopping. With my mom and my uh, uh, aunt,、yeah. she was like, "I'm gonna take you to this block, which is very famous, and you're gonna see a lot of like goods from like foreign countries coming." Jade Lilami. So I went there, and it was fascinating. But because I was, and I think that was the time that I saw the conflicts. Okay. In not my identity, but what people sees in me, and. Well, you know, like what people were seeing me in 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 Iran, I faced the same challenge I was facing in Iran in Afghanistan. How so? So, so you went back to to Herat, 
people were discriminating against you because of what? What were they judging on? Well, because well, I was wearing the same outfit as my Iranian style. So uh-huh. I didn't wear burqa or chador. I had my scarf or shawl. I had my dressing gown and jean. Yep. You know, like... So a, you were dressed like an Iranian. Yes. And because my accent was Iranian, because I was born there. And you were raised So like there, when yeah. I opened my mouth, everyone was like thinking that either I'm Iranian or like I was born there. So they noticed oh, it so fast. So interesting. And, and I can tell that time we were the only family who the girls would walk like that in the street. Out. Yes. Herat is a pretty conservative city. So it's easily to be recognized among the crowd. And when I went, well, the funny part was that they thought I'm Iranian and they wanted to sell me expensive, but my aunt started talking Herati and then they noticed that, they like, you're from yes, there. Uh, yep. I'm from here. They couldn't but take advantage of you. No, <laughs> but, but, but the other part was that because I was dressing like that, I mean, that the harassments you faced in the streets and also in the university, they didn't like it that I was speaking in uh, Iranian accent. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, you foreigner. Oh, like oh. you try to act like more classy that you're better than the others, even though that's not the fact. I was born there, and that's the the accent I got because you know I, mean, I lived my life like with that accent. That's really interesting. So, so there was a conflict about about when you came back. There's a conflict about what it meant to be Afghan, and then this idea of you having to really, in many ways, change who you were raised to be. When you get back to Afghanistan, I mean, the drastic part of it was that when we went to get our ID, Taskare yeah. uh, for our for, to just like you know, if you want to register sure. universities sure. Uh, and passport, when they asked uh, me where did you born, mm-hmm. I said I was born in Iran. Yep. But they're like, oh, we don't recognize Iran, and they put a uh, place of birth Herat, Afghanistan. And I was like, well, that's a lie. I didn't born here. You're sure. changing the history of my life. But sure, sure. they're like, no. And then when they gave me passport, in my passport, it's written Herat, Afghanistan. So they wanted to tell me you were, you, 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 you were born in Iran, but you're not recognized. And you have to be, uh, and, and we want to put Herat for you. So funny thing is that in Iran, even though I was born there, I was never recognized as Iranian. And I've never given any citizenship or passport. Unlike U.S., if you were born here, they give you. In Afghanistan, they know I was born in Iran, but they never recognized that. And they told the art from Herat. So what's interesting about the story that you're telling us is that the moment your family came into Afghanistan, the Border Patrol took your papers and, and ripped them up as a physical demonstration that you can no longer come back to Iran. And then when you get to Afghanistan... The Afghan officials and, and, and authority essentially tell you that you are Afghan, you've always been Afghan, you can essentially forget that element of your life. Right. That's so kind of like you feel stateless. You feel you don't homeless. Know homeless, you exactly. Feel homeless. Like, where do you belong? Where do you Iranian belong? don't want you because you're not Iranian, even though you were born there. Afghans, they don't think you're Iranian. They think you're Afghan, so they erase your history very easily. Well, they think you're Afghan. They want you to be Afghan, but they want you to shed all your Iranian-ness from exactly, yourself. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it was That's actually not what I expected. It's not what you expected. Because I thought it's home. Right. But then I got discriminated just because of my accent, just because of, what, of where I was born. Yeah, and how you dress and all that. So that's fascinating. So help us understand Help us understand how you, how you essentially then go to university, 
study computer science, what that process was like and how that essentially got you to Germany, right? That's how this all worked out for you. Yeah. So what was university like for you? I think that that's like the most funniest part of my life and the coincidence that happened because sure. I, in Iran, in high school, my major was literature. Wonderful. And anthropology. <laughs> I loved literature, anthropology, Islamic studies. history, yeah, studies, history, yeah. everything about humans, you know, geography, yeah. history. I was very fascinated. And that's because also my dad was a poet and he always had these heavy books that was over my mind when I was a kid. But for whatever reason, I always wanted to read them. Oh, interesting. So I, I, I studied literature. And I never had any interest into math and science, even though I performed well and I was eligible to go to math and science, but they didn't pick them. You know, in Afghan houses, you either should be engineer or a doctor, doctor. but they rejected that. <laughs> As I said, I was a travelizer. I didn't want to be a doctor engineer. I wanted to be a lawyer. I really wanted to fight for people. I had this like spirit in me. Yeah. Or journalist. I wanted to yeah. investigate and learn more about like things that are unknown. Yeah. But when we moved to Afghanistan, I remember that we only had two months to get ready for the university entrance exam, mm -hmm. concours. And so what we, I was like, well, I'm like, I don't think that like I can figure it out. What should I study? The only subject I took and I started learning just by myself was Pashto books. I like, I guess like Pashto going to come in the exam and I don't know Pashto. Uh -huh. So just give me Pashto books. Sure, sure, sure. So... I studied some Pashto, and uh, then my sister and I together, we went the same day uh, for the exam. Sure. And uh, I could barely solve some of this math or physics, chemistry, because I haven't studied. My major was literature. Sure. And I answered other questions. So there was this guy who came, and he said, well, I have an announcement. We do have a new faculty computer science and we're going to have foreign teachers i encourage you guys to think about it and as your selection list put computer science okay i remember that moment exactly that i laughed in myself and i said oh my god is this guy kidding me with this infrastructure computer science i'm not gonna pick this field of study right with three out with three hours of electricity in the exactly evening, right? yeah, I'm like, yeah. this is like a joke right right and i might and i only wrote three things literature law finance i think in okay. my, that's the old like if i get to any of this fine not whatever so so i told this to my sister once we finished i was like ah oh, did you see that guy I said did you pick she was like no she was very into literature actually and she picked to even though she studied math and science in iran unlike me and so a couple of months after they announced the result and my sister was like okay I'm gonna go to university to get the result she came home uh -huh. she was very happy she got into literature and she was like first you can't believe if I say something and that moment I got like butterfly in my stomach and I was like computer science uh. that they like I guess they put me in computer science and she said computer science I'm like <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. I never solved any math problems. Why they put me in computer science? And apparently my score matched in the system with computer science. How interesting. Interesting. And so I was so pissed. I cried a lot. I told my parents, you will never ever make me to go to computer science. Oh my gosh. And my dad was like, look, oh, just go for one week. 
your English is not is 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 good. I mean, my English was decent that time. So, my dad was like, "It seems that's a field of study about English, the world, and uh, I think it's good for you." He was trying to convince you. Yeah, I'm like, just go for one week. You didn't like it? Okay, sure. we will change your field of study. And sure, that sure. time, my uncle was the dean of university, so we could have asked him. Okay. Easy to change me to other faculties, I think. Okay. So, so I was like, okay. So I remember the first day, I walked in, and in the hall as I'm going to the class, I hear someone teaching. I got to the room, yeah. and I see five mathematical questions on the board. The teacher is like, oh, are you new students? I said, yes. He's like, sit down and solve these questions. I want to see what's the class level. Right. And I was like, oh my goodness. I look at the questions I barely could solve one or two. And not the rest. And I was so devastated. I went home. I cried. I said, this is what you want to put me? Math? I can't right. handle it. I'm, right. I'm upset. My dad was like, well, just one week. The next day, we had class in algorithm problem solving, introduction to computer science, and also we installed Windows. Wow. I was very fascinated. Yeah. I was like, whoa, like that's like a game or a puzzle. Yeah. And I like game and I like solving puzzles. Yeah. And when they give you a problem to write an algorithm for that, I like the problem solving aspects of it. And my good point was that I knew English and none of my classmates knew English and the ah. teachers were speaking English. So I had to translate for my other classmates. So I felt good about that. That, right. You had that, something that, over your student friend. That I'm yeah. again like number one in the class because I used to be number one and I didn't right. like it in the math class. Right. So I went home. I was a little bit happy. So then I was like, well, I think I have to give up to learn math and stay in computer science. And I decided I have to stay. That's and I it. stayed. And the funny point is that I tell people, well, you hear that people say we study poetry under the light of candle. Uh, I studied a heavy book of calculus in the light of candles. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, very poetic, very difficult. And right. I, I was very happy for my first exam. I got 52 something in math. Uh, and then in the final, I got like 90 something. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. So I, so I, I you really, learned. I learned and you I learned. put my work. But that's like the story of how I got into computer science. So would you, would you, was that all just, as some people would say, was that fate? Was it fate that you got computer science, that you were matched with it? Was there something behind the scenes that made this happen? I think that was a fate for me. Yeah. I really fight to not be in this field of yeah, study. Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> and everything was, to me, ready to be in this field of study. Yeah. And I got it. And then once I finished my bachelor, I was performing best in the school, so... Amazing. Um, the Technical University of Berlin was giving this scholarship for only 25 students. Okay. And 100 students uh, across Afghanistan applied, and they picked a top 25, and I was one of the Amazing. Uh, top 25 students. Went to Berlin 2008. My major was more information management system, database system, and then after finishing my master's in 2010, I went back to Afghanistan and Thought, uh, taught as a professor at the same faculty that I was sure. a student for about three years. At the computer science yes. faculty at Herat University. Yes. So you taught there for three years? Yes. Oh, amazing. What was it like to teach for you? To be honest with you, I hated it. Really? I'm not, I don't like teaching. I really didn't enjoy that job because I, it was just like a, like a nine to five job for me. Yeah. You know? 
there's a system, the system tells you what to do. As much as you want to be creative and create, you know, your own presentation, add more things to your curriculum, but the bigger system sometimes doesn't allow you. Right. So it limits you, and I don't like limitations. But even though I didn't like that, I don't want to, like, praise myself, but I was one of the teachers that was most loved and popular in the university, in the, in the faculty. That's wonderful. And I enjoyed – I, I really – what I've learned from Berlin is that you got to – understand the background of your students and be friend with them, especially in a country like Afghanistan. Students who were coming to Herat University and our faculty were from across Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Some of them has to do job after school to pay for their fees. Some mm -hmm. of them coming from a challenging background. You gotta like learn them and be compassionate with them mm -hmm. um, and help them and lift them up. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if you just kick them out of the class, give them hard time, you know, that that's not going to go anywhere. And that's what I wanted to do with my students. I wanted to give them this feeling that I'm here to support them. I'm here to teach, but I'm here also to support. And if they have problems, they can trust and come to me and talk to me. That's fascinating. Now, did you find that to be uh, more valuable for you and how it matched your personality in terms of being somebody who supported others. And is that what led you to want to start a company? Is that what led you to want to start Code Inspire? Is that what led you to want to start your first NGO? Is that, is that really what it was? Yes, I think I was always a team player. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to engage people. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned a lot. I mean, I had a lot of students who were coming and telling me about their problems. And by understanding that problems, I could help them more and help them to get better score rather than, you know, oppressing them or just like very strict teacher-student relationship. And that's the norm, by the way, for those that are listening. That's the norm in a place like Afghanistan where there is, I think it's important to understand because in the West, like we, we think about education as a, as a question-answer dialogue sort of thing, right? But in a place like Afghanistan, education simply means you show up somewhere, you listen to the teacher, you note-take, and then you come back and at the end of the you know, at the end of the week or the month or whatever the case may be, you then answer the questions you're asked. And if you don't, you get in trouble physically. Quite literally, you may get hit or, you know, you go home and then you disappoint everybody. It's not this place where you feel like your teacher is your friend, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. It, and, and the idea of you can't question your teacher because teachers knows everything. And I wanted to give this thought to them that I'm not perfect. I'm pretty sure with computer science and this growing technology, yeah. things are getting updated so fast, so I'm not 100% yeah. always like accurate. You know, I'm really curious to know your opinion. I want to talk about something really quick. You know what keeps me up at night? When it mm -hmm. comes to Afghanistan, what the question that keeps me up at night is, how do we teach critical thinking in a place like Afghanistan? Like, I think this is the single most important thing that the West has uh, acquired through its history of the Enlightenment and the scientific method. And it's something that I think a place like Afghanistan still needs. And so that's the question that keeps me up at night. Like I think to myself, if the United States could export anything, it shouldn't be wells, it shouldn't be clinics. Those things are nice. Even democracy, that's all wonderful, said and done. But what I would love is for this, 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 the West to export the ability to critically think. Because I think that would you know, cause a lot more back and forth. That would cause a lot more people to question whether or not what they're doing is the best way versus doing it because their father did it or their grandfather did it or their cousin does it. It's this idea of challenging group think. 
Isn't I mean, do you feel like that's do you think that would be valuable in a place like Afghanistan? Well, I mean, like that that certainly it's a good point to talk about, but I think mm-hmm. you go one step behind. Yeah. I think the important thing is not to be not take it personal. We take everything personal in our culture. Oh, if yeah. I criticize you, not in a bad way, it might be a good, you know, mm-hmm. criticism and a constructive thing about like, hey, I noticed that you're doing this. I think if you do it that way, you may see a better result. We take it personal. We're going to hate that person. We're not going to talk to that person again, um, probably for the rest of our life. And thinking that that person is jealous or he thinks they're better than us. Exactly. Or he or she doesn't mean well for us to be successful. And, and, and we don't like to say no or hear no. So these are like some things before critical thinking. I think that's what you should first understand. And even though I was always pretty open, Mm-hmm. But when I came to the U.S. and I interact with other people, when people were saying no to me, mm-hmm. not because they didn't like what I was doing, mm-hmm. because maybe they weren't in the right position to help me, I was getting so upset. I was taking it so personal. I was like, there's something wrong with me. And why they told me no, maybe I'm not doing well. I was getting upset. But now I understand. And I take that no and I try to turn that no to a yes and take a good point out of it and make it constructive. And right. I'm actually happy if people criticize me rather than only praising me because it helps me because I understand and I see the different perspective. What well, helps you learn? It le- helps you learn how you can improve, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's what I try to do with the, with the school. Yeah. With my team, I yeah. have weekly calls. I criticize them. They criticize me. We have very open conversation. And I think that's make us successful as a team because we trust each other. It's not that I get upset and I go talk behind your back and and then someone else. So I tell in front of you because I know you have the capacity to accept it. And then we work together as a team to come up with the solution. The same as the girls. When I have uh, monthly calls with our girls, I try to see what are they up to, what they do. They showcase their games, their apps to me. And I tell them, I don't think this is like, it doesn't look well. Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. Sure. And I see some of them get a little bit personal and upset because they feel think, oh, I, am, I got embarrassed in front of other people. But always at the call, I tell them, it's not I'm criticizing you as your character. It's the work that you're doing. And you should be happy that someone is giving you an honest opinion. It's better to have a smart enemy rather than as a, like a foolish friend, I think. Because the smart enemy makes you... Uh, more powerful and yeah. makes you aware. So, so, so I think we should work first on that. That's How to be tolerant if we say no or rejection, and then absolutely, I think critical thinking is very important. It's an amazing way to engage people to uh, bring openness and acceptance. But that's like something that I. I'm still seeing that once you feel rejections or no, how does that feel in our community? Yeah, yeah, that's a big thing. The idea of saving face is a really big thing in our community and how we're how we're perceived, right? So this idea of honor is really interesting because we talk about in Afghanistan a lot. And this idea of honor exists in the United States, but it exists when it comes to service organizations like the military or the police force or the firefighting department, right? That's when the word honor is used. But in, the, in a place like Afghanistan, honor is used in like every conversation. Is if, if you're honoring somebody, it means you're respecting them. And 
And the moment you question somebody, you're, the moment you criticize somebody, even if it's constructive, people take that as an attack on their honor. And so they feel like they have to defend it. It's a very different approach to understanding, to engagement actually with other people. I think too, one thing that comes to my mind for the critical thinking mm. is that I don't know who said that. I forgot the name or maybe it's like an anonymous person said, but like it, it was an interesting thing. It was like people, when you try to go into a conversation with someone, mm -hmm. majority of the people try to get prepared to give you an answer mm -hmm. rather than they just hear and listen to what are you saying. So most of the time when someone is in a critical conversation or feedback, we're not really listening to them. We try to prepare ourselves to give an answer to them. And I think that's very important. Rather than thinking how I should defend myself, I should just first listen. And then if you listen carefully, I'm pretty sure it will come to your mind. But most of the time, I don't think it's about only Afghans. Maybe it's a little bit more. But usually, like, I think people are tend to themselves prepared to give you an answer rather than to fully focus on what you're talking about. No, I think that's exactly right. I think the idea is instead of actually actively listening, people are preparing a response and they're doing it while you're speaking. They're right. not thinking, okay, what is Fidishta? What's the intention? What does she want from me? What does she want to give to me? What does she want to give to this conversation? Right. right? Yeah. 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 So, so you're teaching, you realize you're, you're, you're a favored teacher because you're supporting your students' needs essentially and you're essentially being there because you're more of a friend, you're more of this confidant person which people, which students can feel like, okay, she's actually somebody who's trying to help me support, help me essentially advance. So let's take it from there and then talk about how you left teaching and how you came to the United States. How did that work? So, so when I was in Afghanistan with my friend, uh, Roya, we created this not-for-profit. Who's Roya? Let's so everyone understands uh, who. Roya Mahbub, she uh, was my colleague in university. She mm -hmm. was uh, one or two semester before my semester. And mm -hmm. we connected because we both were born in Iran as a refugee. Uh, interesting. We got connected and we did a lot of like social activities. And through that, together, we founded this uh, not-for-profit that we found the sponsors and supports here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So... So we were involved and we opened a couple of media labs in Herat in the schools and and I was very engaged in that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, because the sponsors wanted one of us to come to the U.S. to, you know, be the actual face of the organization sure. and be the person from the ground with more knowledge, we decided I come first. So I, that was the reason that I came first to the U.S. and I had I had no idea that I'm gonna stay for a long time in the right. US. I thought that like I'm gonna come, stay for a couple of months, go back. And I remember that I think I didn't even say a proper goodbye to my parents because <laughs> I thought that I, I'm gonna come here for a short term. Sure, but sure. Life happened in a way that I think I got stuck into the immigration system here, and because of the immigration, I not able to go back to Afghanistan because I, if I go back, I won't be able to come back to the U.S. Uh, to the U.S. So, so help us understand, Fadishta, what year was this that you came? What year was this? It was uh, November 2012. November 2012. And you have, you have not gone to Afghanistan since then. Yes. And so you haven't seen your parents since then. You haven't seen your like family that still lives there since then. Yes. Seven years. Seven years. So what is your what is your experience like now in the United States? Let's talk about what I love to do is ask people who come to the United States and what what their expectation was 
and then how their expectations were different from the reality in which they, they found. So what was it like for you to first come to New York City? I think growing up, we watched a lot of American movies, and in a lot of those movies, they show like these high-rises buildings, fancy cars, people are happy, making money, everything's great. Sure. So that's like, I think they did a great marketing on all those movies, because it was just like the life everyone wanted to go, you know, like be happy, have money, the security, everything looks perfect. Um, money grows like on utopia. trees. Like it's a you utopia. Right, um, right. And when I came... Well, I mean, I definitely like uh, felt welcome in the airport. The officer who checked my immigration paper, she sure. was like, "Why you're here?" And I said, "Well, I have this organization." And she's like, "Well, welcome to this country. I hope you enjoy and you're landed in the good city." Sure. Uh, so I was very happy because I was very nervous. I get nervous in the airport because of a lot of discriminations I faced in my life and in airports. Just looking at my passport and Afghans give me more extra time to look at my documents. I understand. So I get nervous. I understand. But I was very happy. So it was a good opening and I liked it. And, and I mean, I, I think I got spoiled because I landed in New York City and New York City is just such a melting pot of people from all over the world that you don't feel different because you see people from any country and you're like, well, if they are in here and making life unlike them so you feel you are in the same boat so you kind of like don't feel but there are some other states or cities that you go you absolutely feel the sure. differences so i think i was fortunate and enough to come and stay in new york city during this whole seven years and sure. not really feel the indifferences yeah yeah new york is special that way you uh, can walk down the street and you can hear six different languages on your way to get your morning coffee yeah, yeah, that's what I love. And I, and I mean, uh, I'm a very city person. I love the crowd, the craziness. It gives me more energy. And just seeing that, like, old people are just here to go after their dreams yeah. makes me more motivated. So that was certainly something that kept me busy. And I think, gosh, life is so fast here. Like, people walk fast in the city. They talk fast. They eat fast. So you all of a sudden get into this cycle of like being fast and just go after your dream and nonstop. And but absolutely different than what I saw in the movies. I mean, <laughs> you got to like really work hard to earn what you want in, 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 in this city. And sure. there's a lot of people like you who are going toward the same goal as you. So you have to do your best to compete with them. Sure. And, but yeah, I mean, I definitely enjoy this city and I think that's a, a great city that welcomed me. I feel like home in this city sure. because I, again, started and building something from zero, my life, my friends and work here. Sure. Uh, so I think I see a plant and, um, and I feel like home. I miss New York City when I go to other places. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about this idea of feeling at home. So you've born and raised in Iran went to Afghanistan, had to deal with what it meant to be Afghan, went to Germany, went back to Afghanistan, and now in New York. So help us understand in your, in your experience, in your mind, what's, what's the definition of home? What does that mean for you? Home to me is wherever you are welcome and you feel safe and happy. Mm -hmm. Home can be your heart. Mm -hmm. If you feel joyful, happiness welcome and home can be a physical location like a building home can be a book that you're reading and feel good about it mm -hmm. home can be running and you feel free 
So to me, home is not a specific place of you were born or you raised or you have ancestors. I think home has a very big meaning of freedom, mm -hmm. of flying, of empowering. And I don't believe in geographical borders and I don't believe in people's categorizing them based on what where they are. I believe, I actually believe on the world without borders and hopefully it will happen one day maybe not in my lifetime maybe yes mm -hmm. but i think i'm a digital citizen of the world i could walk anywhere in the world just using my laptop sitting at my place an apartment in brooklyn the way i did i was here but i could help thousands of miles away the girls in afghanistan just from my laptop and so that's, that's what, the world to me and that's what led you to start code inspire yes that's fantastic yeah yeah um, Fereshta, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So I'd love to do a little quick session on a rapid fire session on questions that I'd like to ask you mm -hmm. and kind of share who comes to mind or what sure. comes to mind. And then uh, we'll take it from there. Does that work? Yeah. All right. What's one problem that you wish you could solve in the world? Poverty. And that's what you're doing, right? Code Inspire. Yes. You're giving women the ability to uh, make money. That's yeah. how we started this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about money. It's all about money. Yeah, unfortunately. I wonder how much of that means, I wonder how much of that thinking comes from being in New York City. You see a very drastic difference in people's life. You yeah. see high rises yeah. with a lot of money, and yeah. then you see homeless people, and yeah. you can't figure it out why mm -hmm. this inequality happens. Well, I think this inequality is really interesting in the context of the United States because in the United States, let me know what you think about this. In the United States, we judge people based on their choices. And so... I think it was Bill Gates at one point said, uh, you know, you're not, it's not your fault that you were born poor, but it's your fault that you die poor. And so he's trying to demonstrate, I think, through this, through this saying that, you know, you are a culmination of all the choices that you ever make. And so New York is like this, this city of ambition. If you want it, you can have it. And if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. This is the feeling. This is the energy of this town. And what's interesting is when people are trying to climb a ladder, they often don't look down. They're always looking up because they're trying to get to the top. And so what happens, I think, is when people try to climb the ladder and they fall off the ladder, people may be not interested in helping them out because they're so interested in climbing to the top. I feel like that may be part of what's happening here in New York, Well, I think at least in the United for, States. I think from my side, mm -hmm. I think building a ladder is a beautiful thing. If mm -hmm. you change the concept of instead of you looking up, mm -hmm. you become one step of that ladder when you're ahead of someone else you take the hand of someone else you put them she or he makes the other step of the sure. ladder sure. and he or she so then together we build that ladder and we all climb together and whatever steps of that ladder is missing there's still someone under you and there's someone under at the top of the ladder sure so you will be protected and supported and, and i think that's what i think about sharing equal resources and solving inequality when we empower everyone at the same time so that they can empower other people. And for me, what we do with Code to Inspire is the same. If today I can take the hand of one of the students and put them in the next step, she will do that for the other girl and put it on the next step. So it's going to be an infinite loop of sure. sporting. That's wonderful. Okay, here you go. Uh, million dollar question. What's the future of Bitcoin? <laughs> future of Bitcoin? <laughs> um, gosh, I mean, like, 
it's going to be unstable at as the volatility of Bitcoin, I think, or unclear, I don't know. But I think it's a empowering technology. I really liked it, the blockchain technology itself. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the cryptocurrency of this technology, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're very empowering because mm-hmm. to me, they are talking about the world without border. So like you yeah. don't need third party like banks to control you. Sure. It's about me and you. I send you and you send me money without any third party. It's very empowering because I send you money and you send me with very um, small fee of transactions instantly. And there's not um, big firms or corporations that they can make benefit out of it. And it can help a lot of people in different areas that even a single dollar of the fee makes a big difference in their life. So mm-hmm. I'm a true believer in any on, um disruptive technology especially with blockchain and we have a blockchain class now in the school oh wonderful and i think the transparency of this system and the immunity of data is very important especially for corrupt countries and corrupt governments that they don't want to be transparent with people so i'm all for it i think it's a amazing if we use it in a good way and yeah. a good purpose yeah i think uh, this folds back in the, the beginning of our conversation we talked about the human need for trust and so this idea of transparency leads back to this idea of whether or not they can trust a government an entity or company whatever the case may be right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Fisher, that's amazing i have one last question for you ready sure what's your message for the world oh my god <laughs> okay world i think my message to you is that wow okay I love Rumi. He's a 13th Persian poet, and I always get inspiration from him when I have difficulties. And that's like one of my, uh, one of this uh, saying of him is one of the most inspiring things that I always carry with myself. And Rumi says that where there is ruin, there is hope for a treasure. And it really translates to the situation of Afghanistan, my life story, and the girls. To me, the ruins is the shattered lives of refugees, shattered lives of women in the country, Afghanistan, who have been through decades of war and destructions. But then there's a treasure in this, and the treasures are the girls and investing in their education. So if we find that treasure and we nurture that treasure, we actually can, what I always say, build Afghanistan 2.0 with these girls who are going to be the leaders in technology. And and that's going to translate to a peaceful Afghanistan. So that's what I will want to tell the world to to know about Afghanistan and uh, and the beauty of Afghanistan, despite of all the gray, dark image that the major media always shows to the people. Fishta, okay, that was wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share um, the work that I do to the world and to your audience. I hope it makes a little bit of a difference in some of the people who listen to it and change their perspective about Afghanistan. I think so. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com.